my shortest teaching ever. <laughs> All right. So for tonight, we're going to be doing another open study. I'm only going to be tackling two questions tonight. They're excellent questions, though, and um, each one will re require a little bit of detailed explanation, especially the second of the two questions. The first one comes from a really important passage in the book of Genesis, which is in chapter 48. It's a passage in which uh, Jacob nearing the end of his life, the patriarch Jacob nearing the end of his life is, is uh, speaking about his um, last concerns just before he leaves this world. And uh, we're, we're going to read specifically from uh, verse 21. And then I'll read you the question. Then Israel said to Joseph, Israel here being Jacob, of course. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Um, the, um, the question, which is not fully addressed in this verse that they're asking about, but is, um, is an important question for us to, to tackle is this. In, in Genesis 48, 21, Jacob promises Joseph he will come again into the promised land. But later in the story, Joseph uh, died in Egypt, and only his bones returned to the land. Is that what Jacob really meant? All right, so in this verse that I just read, what's happening here is that Jacob is speaking toward the end of his life to his son Joseph, and he's speaking, and I think we can be confident in describing it this way, even though this word isn't used in the passage, he's speaking prophetically, meaning that Jacob is speaking under the influence of the Spirit of God, and he speaks about the future in a sure and certain way. He's not saying something to Joseph that has to do with, Joseph, you know, I love you, you're near and dear to my heart. Joseph had a special relationship with his father. But he's not saying, Joseph, you're near and dear to my heart, and this is what I wish would happen for you in the future. Um, what he says, he says as if this is certain that it will happen. So let me read again, Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. So he speaks a, a two-part prophecy to his son, Joseph. And the prophecy is first, God will be with you, which is simply a, a prophecy of, of, of enduring covenant relationship between the Lord and Joseph in the future and uh, the implied blessings that are going to go with Joseph remaining in right covenant relationship with the Lord. And uh, David took us through a, a detailed study uh, a few years ago um, through the life of Joseph, and it was really evident in that study how Joseph did remain close to the Lord and faithful to the Lord all the years of his life, 
And the Lord certainly did bless him with his presence and with the assurance of, of a covenant, enduring covenant relationship. So that first part of what Jacob in a prophetic promise to his son Joseph said to Joseph absolutely did come true. The part is, God will be with you. And the second part of the prophecy is this, and God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, remember that at this point in the story, the covenant family has migrated uh, to Egypt. And of course, Joseph has preceded them to Egypt by the Lord's design, the Lord's purpose and intention in order to uh, make sure, to ensure by his wise administration of the nation of Egypt and their economy to ensure that the covenant family would survive a coming world famine, which did happen. And it certainly affected the promised land and the covenant family would have at bare minimum deeply struggled in that circumstance or possibly not survive. So the Lord uh, provided a way for them to uh, survive the famine. But the, as a result, the entire family had to move to Egypt, Jacob included, as the patriarch, and they've been there. And now Jacob, as he's nearing the end of his life, is speaking to his son, Joseph, and he's saying, God is going to be with you. And in the future, he doesn't use that phrase, but that's the reference. In the future, God will bring you again into the land of promise, the promised land, the land of your fathers. Uh, he's going to be brought back from Egypt. Joseph is, is going to be brought back from Egypt to the promised land. Now, the, the question is raising an issue, and the issue is, did that prophecy get fulfilled, or was Jacob in some sense mistaken in his prophecy, or did he mean something other than what it seems to say to us? Because what actually happened was, Joseph did live out the rest of his life after these, these words that were shared to him by his father, and he did return to the promised land, but he only returned to the promised land for a short-term visit. Do you remember the circumstance in which Joseph returned to the promised land was the death of his father Jacob. And in that, he um, led by Pharaoh's um, permission, he led a, a train of people back to the promised land, including the covenant family, in order to bury Jacob in the promised land as he desired to be buried. And so in that sense, Joseph did return to the land of his fathers. And you could make a case, and even some Bible prophecy uh, teachers, Bible commentators have taken that approach to this promise that, that Jacob makes that, okay, it was fulfilled because Joseph did return to the land in order to bury his father. But then he came back to Egypt and he lived out his days in Egypt and died in Egypt and never returned personally in order to live permanently in the promised land. So the question is a, a valid question. Number one is it, and they're not asking this specific, but I'm expanding their question. Number one, is it, a, is it a real prophecy? And if so, in what sense was it fulfilled? Did Joseph mean something? I mean, did Jacob mean something other than what he actually said to, to Jacob? I mean, to Joseph, because... The clear implication is not just, in my view of, of what he says to his son here, you're going you're to take a short trip back in order to bury me, but then you're going to return to Egypt again. The clear implication is, 
At some future point, you're going to return to the promised land and you're going to remain there. It's going to be in the same sense that Jacob's final resting place from a physical standpoint was the promised land. It would be the case for Joseph as well. Now, what did happen at the end of Joseph's life, of course, is that he died and he made a special request in relationship to his own burial. And do you remember what the special request was that Joseph made in terms of his own burial? He requested of those that were in his family line that they would take his bones. This is Joseph now. They would take his bones and they would carry them back to the promised land and that they would bury him there. Now, when that was actually fulfilled was a significant time later, some 430 years later during the events of the Exodus, when Moses was brought by the Lord uh, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the, the wilderness of Sinai and eventually crossing the river Jordan and into the promised land. And as they left, in the Exodus story, we're told there's one little detail that's added, which is they carried with them the bones of Joseph in order to bury him in the promised land. So um, the question, is it a valid prophecy? Yes, I believe it's a valid prophecy. And I believe it was fulfilled exactly as Jacob meant it. Whether or not Jacob understood the exact details in advance of how the Lord would fulfill his prophetic promise to his son Joseph, I don't know, but I do believe it was a prophecy and I do believe it was fulfilled, but it was fulfilled in an unexpected way. It was not fulfilled, the prophecy was not fulfilled by uh, Joseph physically moving while he was still alive to the promised land. He never did move permanently back to the promised land, but it was fulfilled in the moving of his bones by the children of Israel in the Exodus and their burial of his bones in the promised land. And the question is, though, how can we say that that really fulfills the prophecy? All right, let's, um, let's look one chapter before where we read in Genesis 47. I'm going to attempt to um, answer that question. In fact, uh, just before we go to Genesis 47, let me read you the the references to what I was just describing. I don't want to leave those out. Exodus, first Exodus 13. This is now the actual events of the children of Israel leaving Egypt on their journey toward the promised land. And of course, Exodus 13 is taking place some approximately, as scripture later identifies for us, 430 years after Jacob made this prophetic promise to Joseph. So Exodus 13, let's read verse 19. I'll I'll just start from 17 and read through to 19. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, that he had made them swear this over 400 years before, 
saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And so they did. They, they fulfilled his dying request, so to speak, uh, which was in part a request and in part another prophecy like his father Jacob had prophesied about his return to the land. And then let's look at a, a New Testament passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, to me, there's many interesting passages in Hebrews chapter 11. You're, you're probably familiar with Hebrews 11, but just as a quick reminder, it's kind of an overview of those that we consider as we read and study the Old Testament to be the, the heroes of faith throughout the Old Covenant time period. And they're, they're just little bite-sized encapsulations of significant things that happened in their lives because of their faith in the Lord and their trust in the Lord, and what the Lord did in and through them because of their faith. What's interesting to me is when you consider the life of Joseph, and as I said again, David took us in detail through the entire life, and there were great things that the Lord accomplished through Joseph. And if I were writing Hebrews 11, obviously I wasn't, and obviously Paul as he wrote Hebrews 11, was writing under the inspiration of God's spirit. But if I was given the task, just write out a record of the great heroes of faith and the examples of their exercise of faith in the Old Testament, and I came to Joseph's life because you couldn't possibly leave him out of a list of the heroes of faith and the expressions of great faith in his life. And now I'm thinking about Joseph, I'm thinking of all the things that were accomplished by faith in his life, what would I mention first? What would be the most important thing to mention about Joseph? I would not have mentioned this. I would have mentioned probably that he trusted the Lord as he was sold into slavery in, in Egypt. In spite of the great trial, he continued to, to remain faithful to the Lord. Or I might have mentioned that uh, by faith, he exercised great wisdom in um, in handling the circumstances of the famine in the way that he did in order to save not just the nation of Egypt from the famine, but to save all of the covenant people and therefore all of God's future covenant purposes for his people. But what is mentioned by Paul, by the Spirit of God in Hebrews 11, by Joseph, is just one thing. One thing out of all that was accomplished in the life of Joseph by his faith, and that was the future circumstances of the disposition of the bones of his body. And why the emphasis on bones, do you think? Like when we talk about burial as believers, we generally don't think in terms of bury my bones. Why the emphasis on bones? The emphasis on bones is simply because the great lapse in time between when he made this prophetic request and when it was actually fulfilled. 
I don't, you know, later uh, in the Genesis account from where we stopped reading, uh, Joseph does die. And when, he's when, he, when he eventually dies, do you remember how his body was handled by the Egyptians? He was embalmed, just like the, the pharaohs were embalmed. And because of the special embalming process that they practiced for the, the great uh, ruling kings of Egypt, their bodies remained preserved for much longer after death than any other bodies that died. But even preserved through embalming after 430 years, all that's going to be left are the bones of that body. And without that embalming, probably even the bones would have dissolved to dust. But here, the, the point of this being included in the record of the heroes of faith is there's something significant about Joseph exercising his faith about his burial in a specific location, which was the promised land, even over the, the long extended delay of 430 years. So with that understanding, now let's go back, if we can, to Genesis and look one chapter before where we were. Let's look at, in uh, Genesis 47. And then I want to connect what I'm about to read to a much earlier passage in Genesis, in the creation account. Genesis 47. This is going now back to Jacob again, Joseph's father. And we're going to start reading in verse 29. So Genesis 47, 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, that's of course Jacob again. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. I don't want to go into details about the putting of the hand under the thigh, but it was, it was a practice that had to do with the most solemn way to engage someone else in making a uh, a promise that they would not and could not possibly consider breaking. So this is, this is representing something that's so important to Jacob that he has his son put his hand under his thigh in order to ensure the promise I'm about to ask you to make, I don't want you to ever break this promise. It's so important to me. So promise to deal kindly and truly with me. And here's what he wanted. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place, burying place. He answered, and this is now Joseph speaking, I will do as you have said. And then Jacob, just double checking and taking it one step deeper, making sure that Joseph really gets the significance and the importance to his own heart. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. All right, so what I want you to notice is a small detail in the passage, and it could easily be read right past and overlooked. What is, what is Jacob asking Joseph to do? He's asking him for a specific disposition of his physical body when he dies. 
He's saying, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. I want to be buried in the promised land with my fathers. And when he says my fathers, he's specifically thinking of the two great patriarchs in the covenant line that preceded him, his immediate father, Isaac, who was buried in the promised land, and of course, his grandfather, Abraham, who was buried in the promised land. He wanted to be taken there and buried in the same site that they were buried. But when he asked that, I want you to notice how he asks it, because I do believe it's, it's biblically significant. And one of those things that has kind of been lost in our current culture, even for the most part in current Christian culture, when it comes to thinking about burial and end-of-life disposition issues. And what I'm about to say applies really only to those who know the Lord in the same way that Jacob here knew the Lord and Joseph knew the Lord. Again, reading in verse 29, and I'm going to start where Jacob is actually speaking. If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me, And then this line, this is what I want you to notice. Do not bury me in Egypt. Now, the detail that's easy to look past is I I just want to change what he said and I want to say it the way we typically think about it. And then I think in the difference, uh, it may jar a different perspective for you. He does not say this. Do not bury my body in Egypt but bury my body in the promised land with my fathers. He does not say it that way. What does he say? Do not bury me. He doesn't say do not bury my body. He says do not bury me here in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burial place. So four times he uses the word me in a a repeated emphasis, kind of an even an escalating emphasis to make sure that his son understands this burial request in the same way that Jacob's heart by faith and informed by what we identify as biblical principle would convey to his heart. So what's, what's, this, what's the point? What's the distinction? The distinction is this. In modern culture, today's culture, uh, we have kind of a, um, what I would call a mechanical worldview of the physical body, which is that the physical body is, uh, you know, it's like an organic machine. It's a biological machine. And it's serving a purpose for us who live within this organic biological machine that's motoring its way through this world. But eventually the machine wears out, wears down, and comes to an end of its lifespan. And when it does, and this I'm talking about for believers, of course, because in the world, those who do not know the Lord and who have strictly a materialistic worldview, uh, they view the end of the biological machine as the end of everything. But for those who are believers, there's even this kind of perspective that the biological machine will come to an end of its usefulness, of its ability to function in this world. It will die, and then our soul disconnects from it, and the person goes somewhere else 
to just kind of hang out with the Lord. Now, I do believe in the existence of the human soul, which is distinct from the human body. And I do believe that when we die in this world, our physical body ceases to function. It should be buried. And then our soul, by the grace of God, is escorted to um, heaven itself. Those of us who know the Lord by by faith and grace, um, we're escorted to heaven and we we are in the presence of the Lord and what's in the presence of the Lord is our soul and not our physical body. But is that for those of us who know the truth about the future, is that the end of our personal story? And the answer to that is no in a very, very important sense. In that, that is what has been termed and identified by believers as the intermediate state. The time frame between the, 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 the death of a believer's physical body in this world and a future event that will certainly occur in between those two events, the death of the believer and this, you know, I haven't yet described this future event. In between that, whatever time our soul is in heaven and in the presence of the Lord, we call that the intermediate state. But Calling it the intermediate state is a a correct and true theological term. What does that imply? It's not the final state. It's not the final stage of our story. What comes after the intermediate state for those believers who are right now in their soul only in the presence of the Lord around the throne of God? What comes next for them? What comes next is the eventual return to this world in the second coming of Christ, of our Lord Jesus. And when he comes, two things will happen along with his return. One is there will be a great resurrection in which those that believe will be be raised from the dead and reunited with their bodies, but now with a remade, recreated, renewed, refashioned, glorified physical body and then the day of judgment will follow and then forever those that know the Lord will be with the Lord in this glorified state which is an eternal marriage in terms of our experience of our soul and our glorified physical body. So the point and the reason I'm going into all this detail is this has everything to do with a biblical worldview of the body which is different than the current social and cultural view of the body. I mentioned we'd go back and look at an older uh, or an earlier passage in Genesis. Let's do that now. Uh, head to Genesis chapter two. And David, I think let's do um, let's do the air conditioning. It's starting to get a little warm. Genesis chapter two. You should be familiar with the passage. This is the account of how specifically the Lord created Adam. We're reading from Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So in this account, what's important to notice, I'm sure you've noticed it before, but let me just reemphasize it for you. There are two elements that are combined in this account and the truth of how humanity began 
as God's creation in this world. Two elements, and those two elements are, are exceptionally important, and they will remain, not just for the course of our life in this world, but for all of eternity to come, they're going to be exceptionally important. The first element is there's a, a practical or physical element involved, which is where the Lord starts with raw material here, simply dust of the ground. At clay, he's starting with raw material, and he forms and shapes that raw material into a human body, but then on top of that raw material, he does something significant in his personal relationship with this newly formed human, newly created human. He breathes into the body that he's just formed, into the nostrils of the body, the breath of life, and now that body is filled by God's own life having breathed into him, and it transforms the raw material from simply an accumulation, kind of a compacted amount of dust into a living, breathing, organic person. But a person that has not just a physical element, but now a, a spiritual element that is alive within him. Because the last phrase says in verse seven, and the man became a living creature and... The idea here is that he, in, in, and in other translations, it even says a man became a living soul. So there is both the creation of the body and the animation of the human soul that takes place, and the two are intended to be joined together and not intended to be separated. The only reason the soul and the body were ever separated in Adam's personal story was what? Why would eventually, because Adam lived beyond this moment, 900 years, over 900 years. Why, why was his body eventually separated from his soul? It's because of sin, the entrance of sin into the world. And, and through the, the avenue of sin, death entered the world. But it was never intended to be so. And in the final state, it never will be so. So um, one last passage and then I'll, I'll sum up my answer to this question. Uh, let's turn over now to the book of Job. Verse 19, or chapter 19, verses uh, 25 through 27. Now Job is considered by Bible scholars, even though the book of Genesis is written to describe the earliest portion of, of world history, in terms of when it was written, the book of Genesis was written after the book of Job was written. So in, in Job, most Bible scholars acknowledge that this is the oldest book in the Bible, so to speak. The very first portion of scripture that was ever written. And the only reason I mention that is because what Job says here is as new as new covenant essential doctrine. And yet it's as old as the book of Job itself is old. So let's read from Job 19, 25. And this is right in the middle of Job's story. You know Job's story of being afflicted by hidden and mysterious purposes of the Lord, afflicted with great trials and tribulations in his life circumstances. And this declaration that Job makes is in the midst of, of his experience of these trials. And he says this, 
For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he, the Redeemer he's referring to, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. This is an, an amazing declaration because it's a reference, a prophetic anticipation of the arrival of Christ into this world. But he's referring to Christ as already living at the time that he speaks these words. And not only is he already living, but eventually at the last, as Job describes, he, he, Christ, will stand upon the earth. Then verse 26, he shifts his focus from an exclusive focus on the Redeemer to now, what does this mean for him ultimately and eventually? For Job. Verse 26, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So there's this wonderful mixture of the overwhelming nature of his trial that he's struggling with, but this strong and unwavering faith in a future event. And the future event that theologians identify, and rightly so, that Job is referring to here is a future day of what I referred to a minute ago that's, that's connected to the second coming of Christ, and that is the day of the great resurrection. That in the future, even after his physical body, as he was currently living in it, has been destroyed, yet in his flesh, he will see the Lord. He doesn't mean by this that sometime during the course of his natural life in this world as he lived it in that ancient time, that he would see the Lord in person because the Lord Jesus wouldn't come for many generations after Job made this declaration. He's talking about how he is going to be, even after his physical death, he's going to be raised from the dead. And in that resurrection circumstance, he is going to see the Lord with his own eyes. He's going to see him face to face. So how does this relate then to uh, the prophecy that Jacob made to Joseph? The prophecy is a prophecy that Joseph is going to return to the promised land. And all that did return to the promised land were Joseph's bones. So does that invalidate or evacuate the fulfillment of the prophecy? And the answer is, if there is no future resurrection, then yes, we could say in that case, if there is no future resurrection for believers, then that prophecy failed And Joseph never actually returned to the promised land. Only the bones of his his organic machine that he walked around with during the time of his life here in this world, only those bones returned, but not Joseph. He was somewhere else. His soul was somewhere else. And truly his soul was somewhere else, but the point is he had his bones carried back and buried in the promised land because it was important to his heart and to his faith and to his, his anticipation of God's covenant promises and the fulfillment of those in the future that on the day of resurrection, he would come out of the tomb side by side with his father Jacob and his, um, his excuse me, uh, yeah, his father Jacob, his grandfather Isaac and his great-grandfather Abraham 
on the day of resurrection as the Lord returned and that as a result uh, that would be fulfilled in future history on that day of the resurrection. All right, so I hope I didn't lose you with all the details we went into there, but I, I will stop our answer to that one. And in the time we have left, we've got just enough time to move to our second question. So for this one, if you could turn over to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and Luke 21. So Luke 21 is a, a super important passage in the Gospel of Luke, and it's, it's not meant to be studied in isolation. Uh, it's part of a trio of chapters that are all focused on the same concern. Those chapters are found in three of the four gospel accounts. In the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, you find the same concern um, developed in Mark 13. In Luke, it's here in chapter 21. And then in Matthew, as we studied in some detail together, as we were working through the gospel of Matthew, uh, it's in Matthew 24. All three of these chapters take place at the end of the life, the natural life and ministry of the Lord Jesus in this world at the beginning of what we call the final week of his life leading up to the uh, cross and um, all of the events that follow. In that final week, one of the things that happened was that the Lord Jesus uh, on, on one of the days of the final week went out with his disciples out of the city of Jerusalem, they crossed down the slope from the temple, across the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The Lord Jesus sat there on the Mount of Olives and with his disciples looked back across the Kidron Valley at the glories of the Temple of Solomon that was there as the prominent feature of the city of Jerusalem. And the disciples called Jesus' attention to the temple with not full understanding of what God was about to do in history, in his great purposes for um, the future. And so the Lord Jesus launches into a, an extended prophecy that is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. So that discourse, it's really a prophecy by the Lord Jesus, is contained in those three gospel chapters. Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24. And they're essentially just parallel versions of the same prophecy. So here is the question, and it's from one verse in Luke 21. Let me read the verse first. It's verse 31, Luke 21, 31. And uh, since it's part of a little bit longer, just barely a little bit longer section, I'll start actually reading from verse 39. And the he here is the Lord Jesus speaking. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. And then verse 31 is where we find our question. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And then his conclusion this is a line that is found almost word for word in the, the Matthew account of the same passage. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has 
taken place. Now, I certainly won't have time tonight to go back and reteach all of the, the many weeks of studies that we did in Matthew 24 and all of their context. All of those studies are on Sermon Audio if you want to go back and re-listen to them. But essentially, the approach that I took was different than uh, the most popular approach to understanding this passage. The most popular approach at this moment in church history is that what Jesus was actually speaking about were events that had to do with 2,000 some years into the future, and they still remain in our future today. That Jesus was prophesying about events in our near future. I don't believe he was. Uh, he, does, he does speak about far distant future events elsewhere. But in these three chapters, I think he's talking about circumstances that have to do with the present generation that he was living in and that he was addressing and that he was speaking to as emphasized in verse 32. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place so, or are or, or, um, or fulfilled. So the idea being that whatever he says in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13 has reference to events in the generation of time that began when Jesus was speaking these words. And the biblical concept of a generation is 40 years. He spoke these words in 30 AD. You add 40 to 30 AD and you come up to the number 70 AD. And of course, is there any framework for understanding the things that he said in these chapters in relationship to some event that took place in 70 AD of Israel's history? And the answer to that is a clear and definitive yes, which is it was the climactic event in the history of the nation of Israel. Climactic because the nation of Israel, as it was known in history, came to a crashing conclusion in 70 AD as the Romans reinvaded the city of Jerusalem. They overwhelmed the temple, destroyed the temple, dismantled it stone by stone, burned the, the, the entire uh, precincts of the temple, and um, carried away any survivors, though most people were killed in the city of Jerusalem, carried away any survivors as slaves to the Roman Empire back to Rome. And never again from that point in history forward has that nation of Israel been reformed. But the, the view that I said is the most popular one currently, which is known as dispensational futurism as an interpretation of Bible prophecy, sees all of these things as still in our future. And so what they do with this passage, and specifically this reference to the fig tree, is this. They interpret the fig tree as a symbol of the nation of Israel. And they talk about here uh, in verse 30 of Luke uh, 21, uh, verse 29 said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So what they believe is that when the fig tree blossoms again, Israel being symbolized by a fig tree, when it blossoms again, meaning when Israel is in some far distant future time from when Jesus spoke this, reformed as a nation. And did that ever happen? Yes, in the year 1948, after the events of World War II, the, um, the League of Nations, which was becoming the United Nations, uh, at that point determined to give to Israel 
the historic land that belonged to them, give to the Jews that historic land, the surviving Jews from the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust, and allow them to form themselves into a modern nation in order to protect themselves, in order to survive on into future generations. So they interpreted and believed this dispensational interpretation of this passage that when that happened, when Israel was reformed in 1948, that would start a countdown of a single generation of time and that by the end of that generation of time, all the promises described in Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24 would be fulfilled. Now, of course, the problem with that viewpoint is if you add 40 years to 1948, what do you come up to? You come up to 1988. And so they believed and were convinced and wrote books and published books and many, many uh, uh, Bible studies and, and uh, audio recordings, all anticipating that by 1988, all of these events would be fulfilled leading to the second coming of Christ. Now, of course, the Lord did not return in the second coming of Christ by 1988. And even to this day, and we're significantly past 1988 now, uh, even to this day, he still has not returned. And so uh, as a result, the, the dispensational view has been going through some, some modifications and revisions and reconsiderations. And I don't want to get into all of their uh, scrambling to try to figure out uh, how they got this wrong. All I want you to understand for the sake of our study tonight and how I'm going to respond to the question I'm about to read is that this has nothing to do with that view if you've ever encountered it, even though it's the most popular way or had been the most popular way to interpret this passage. So if, Je if Jesus, when he references the fig tree, is not talking specifically just about Israel, what is he talking about? What does it mean? Well, let's... Let me just read the question that was asked based upon uh, Luke 21, 31. The question is this. This is a person that's heard me teach on this and pretty much agrees with me, but they're, they're troubled by a specific phrasing in this verse. If the parable of the fig tree speaks about the judgment of 70 AD, why would the Lord say the kingdom of God is near? By 70 AD, the kingdom of God would have arrived 40 years earlier, wouldn't it have? So what they're looking at here is in verse 30, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. All right, so the first thing I want to point out in trying to answer this question is, look back at verse 29 once more. And this is just to doubly emphasize um, how the dispensational view got this fig tree identity wrong. He told them a parable. First of all, we, we studied parables when we were all the way back in Matthew um, 13. There are, there are, there are references in all of the parables in which some, some practical thing from the world around us is teaching us spiritual lessons about God's kingdom and his kingdom purposes. But parables aren't filled with symbolism in the same way that prophecies are. So here, 
The fact that Luke identifies what Jesus says about the fig tree as a parable tells us that we're not to look at the fig tree as a symbol for something specific, like the fig tree is Israel, like the dispensationalists do. So he told them a parable saying, look at the fig tree. But then he goes on, and this detail is dropped as dispensationalists read the passage. Look at the fig tree and what? All the trees. Yes, he does reference a fig tree. Why? Because it was one of the most common trees in Israel in the days that Jesus was teaching. But he's not just focused on the fig tree as a, as a symbol. He's saying, look at all the trees. In what sense look at all the trees? As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So when do, when do trees, we're talking about trees that are not perennial. You know what a perennial tree is? It's one that never loses its greenery. It stays green year round. But most trees are not perennial. And most trees, like we have a big um, oak tree in our backyard. And every fall, the oak tree drops all of its leaves on the ground. We have to rake up all those leaves. And then every spring, that oak tree produces brand new leaves. And when it produces brand new leaves, it's a signal that something is coming. What's it's a signal that, of what is coming? Here he says, summer is already near. So the point of referencing trees is just the nearness of an event that is demonstrated through the natural circumstance of the life cycle of a tree on an annual basis. Doesn't matter whether it's a fig tree or any other kind of tree. Any tree that's not a perennial will demonstrate that same principle. Now, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? They asked the question, didn't the kingdom of God come back at the time that Jesus was alive in this world and that Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose again from the dead and Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father? And the answer to that is yes, that's when the kingdom actually came. We know that with certainty for a number of reasons that we've studied together, but um, I want you to think in terms of a specific reference when Jesus one time was teaching his opponents or correcting his opponents when they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. And he said, the kingdom is, and he's speaking in present tense terms, he says, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And what he meant by that is, the kingdom arrived in this world when the king arrived in this world. So you can make a strong and ironclad biblical case that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was not strictly a future fulfillment event, but was a present fulfillment event in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus in all that it accomplished for his people. This is why he said to his disciples in, in the beginning of his public ministry, do you remember uh, the very first message, the, the essence, kind of the title, because it wasn't just a one-line message. The title of what Jesus originally preached when he began his public preaching ministry, do you remember the first message that he preached? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of course, that's the identical message in terms of summary 
of what John the Baptist, who had immediately preceded him and was intended to introduce the ministry of the Messiah, that's the same message that John the Baptist preached. When he came, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I've, I've described before what, when the Bible says something is at hand, what that means. It's a reference that describes an event, because we're, t- we're talking chronologically. This is when it's going to happen. It's so close that you can reach out and grab hold of it. That's what being at hand means. So like Ken is sitting, you know, like four pews back from me. Ken is close, but is he at hand to me? The answer is no. I can't, I don't have an arm long enough. I'd have to literally walk over to him to reach out and make physical contact with him. But if they were sitting here in the front row, I could simply reach out and grab hold of him. And in that case, he would be at hand. So the idea that Jesus came into this world and that he was announcing a kingdom that would only come some 2,000 years in the future or more is not a biblical understanding of the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same essential message in Luke 21 when he says, using slightly different description, instead of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, here he refers to, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So what we're talking about are events that are so close that they're right on the verge of fulfillment, of actually happening. Now, in the question, they have a, a valid confusion here because when I'm saying that Jesus arrived in this world and when he arrived in this world, the kingdom arrived with him because the king is the presence of the kingdom. Wherever the king goes, the kingdom goes. You can't separate the king from the kingdom. And if Jesus truly was king, and even before Pontius Pilate, he testified that he was, he said to correct Pilate's misunderstanding when Pilate asked him, are you truly a king? Are you the king of Israel? He said, you've spoken truly. But then he added an additional element, which is my kingdom is not of this world, meaning don't, yes, I'm a king, but not in the traditional sense of, of I'm not going to set up a military base. I'm not going to set up a political system. I'm not going to sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem like kings of this world do. My king, kingdom is more essentially a spiritual kingdom that will overlay over this world, that will, in a sense, influence the world from the inside out rather than being imposed from the outside in. But the reality is the kingdom arrived when the king arrived. So how is it that Jesus could say in some sense the events of 70 AD, which is what he's prophesying about, will tell us that the kingdom is near if the kingdom has already come. So that's the last question we have to resolve. Let's look, we're still in Luke 21. Let's look now at... um, A specific passage I want to look at is in um, 21, starting in verse 25. So we're in this time period in the prophecy, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's making a prophecy. We're in a time period between 30 AD and 70 AD that's going to culminate in a final climactic 
destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. <clears throat> but in the buildup to that, he says this in verse 25. And there will be signs, <clears throat> excuse me for my voice, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now we've referenced all that and developed all that and explained all of that in our Matthew studies. So I won't have time to redo all of that. But look at verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, meaning these are only preliminary during this 40-year time period, this last generation of Old Covenant Israel, they're preliminary leading up to a final destruction of the city and the temple when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And what does that mean? He's talking to true believers. And in one sense, those true believers have already been redeemed, have they not? If they've been born again, if they believe that Jesus died on the cross, if they believe he rose again from the dead, they have been redeemed. But here he says, when you see these things take place, lift your heads, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In some sense, the events of 70 AD are going to bring about a greater evidence of their redemption. And that greater evidence is they're going to be fully and finally released from all of the restraints of old covenant, wrongly understood, wrongly interpreted and wrongly applied legalism through the system of the pharisaical approach to God's law. All of that's going away because the temple's going away. And in that, in the events of 70 AD, even though they're already redeemed, they're going to be experiencing the fullness of their redemption. So just like he says in verse 28, your redemption is drawing near in those events. In the same way, look again at the portion that we're we're focused on verse 31. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So in the arrival of Jesus into this world, both in his incarnation, the perfect life that he lived, the sacrificial death that he died on the cross, the glorious resurrection from the dead, and then his ascension back to heaven to sit enthroned as the king of the kingdom of heaven, upon the throne of God from that day forward, even till this day, all of that was the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. But in the events of 70 AD, there's going to be an even greater revelation, an even greater understanding that the king is truly ruling over his kingdom by bringing this judgment upon disobedient and hard-hearted old covenant Israel. And of course, he said this exact thing to the, the, um, the ruling Sanhedrin in their, their um, trumped up trial against him when uh, they accused him of blasphemy and uh, ordered for him to be executed and that all leading to his death on the cross. But in that circumstance, of course, he said to those men in uh, Luke 26, that from this day forward, you're going to see um, the kingdom 
the, the king ruling upon the throne and the, the kingdom of heaven in greater evidence, leading up, of course, to the events of 70 AD. Now, uh, one last passage, and this is from our Matthew study, and we'll end with this tonight. Matthew 16, this is just a single verse. I know these are difficult passages to, to grasp in the right context, but this one uh, was one I remember sharing that was uh, greatly helpful to me in understanding the spiritual nature of understanding these passages. Um, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and it's at the end of Matthew 16, and I'm going to read from verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, and you've heard me emphasize this before, whenever Jesus uses that phrase, it's his way of gaining the full heart attention of the people that he's speaking to. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, most interpreters uh, in our current generation still want to view this as some reference to the second coming of Christ. If it is a reference to the second coming of Christ, then we've got a problem. And what is the problem that we have? Jesus just spoke to disciples that were alive at that time that he was speaking these words, and he promised them that there would, there would be some of them who were standing there that day who would still be alive to personally witness with their own eyes the, and see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If he's referencing the second coming of Christ, which still hasn't happened to this day, then he was just flat out wrong, and he misled his disciples. And if he did that, then we might as well just chuck the entire Bible into the trash bin and go about our merry way. Uh, like Paul said in uh, Corinthians, uh, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because none of it has any real significance or meaning for us. So what does he mean when he says, there'll be some here that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? He's referring to the beginning of his evident kingdom rule in the events of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension from the right hand of the Father to the right hand of the Father. But beyond that, because all of them that were standing there that day were still alive to see those things happen. All 12 of the disciples witnessed all of those events. But he didn't say, all of you standing here will see these things. He said, some of you standing here will see these things. And so there's got to be some time delay in which at least a few of those standing there or at least one of those standing there would die and not be present to witness those events in order to make all of the words that Jesus used in this description to come true. And so what we see is, yes, the kingdom came in evidence in 30 AD, but it came in its fuller and more complete expression in terms of testimony to observers in the events of 70 AD. And by the time 70 AD came, some of those that were standing there had already lost their life in their service to the Lord. And so this is clearly a reference to that great climactic event of 70 AD in that way. All right, so I hope that 
is clarifying and not further confusing. But if I did leave you confused, feel free to seek me out. And I'd be glad to talk to you about it in more detail if that would be helpful. And Lord willing, next week we'll be back with uh, the beginning of our study of the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. God bless you.